About a year and a half ago, I was doing a long self-retreat. And sometime in the middle of it, I had a series of a few sittings in a row when aspects of the teachings from different traditions all seemed to fall into place. It was just, you know, sometimes how you have a few sittings that things just line right up. And it was a unified understanding through these different teachings of what frees the mind. It began with remembering what is called the Buddhist Song of Enlightenment. The words that are said to have first come to his mind after his great awakening under the Bodhi tree. And just a few of the lines from those verses will probably be familiar to you. O house builder, you have now been seen. That is the house builder of self. O house builder, you have now been seen. You will build no house again. And then it goes on, and it ends with two lines. Realized is the unconditioned. Achieved is the end of craving. Now, over the past few thousand years, there has been endless discussion about the unconditioned. But this statement of the Buddha's is very clear and unambiguous teaching about the nature of the free mind. Achieved is the end of craving. He's really declaring what happened that night under the Bodhi tree. Of course, when we hear this, we might feel a little daunted. Are we really ready for such a radical departure from our normal, usual way of life? Can we even imagine a mind free of craving? We might resonate more easily with St. Augustine's prayer, Dear Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. <laughs> but somehow, in the immediacy of that practice period, during that retreat, I understood the Buddha's words in a new way. So rather than understanding the end of craving only as some far-off goal, you know, only as the culmination of the path, or as some meditative state that I would try to prolong, I also understood the end of craving more deeply as the practice now, as what we're practicing in each moment. Tulku Ergin, who was one of the great Dzogchen masters you know, of the last century, he taught very often about practicing recognizing the nature of mind, that open, empty, aware nature, free of clinging. Practice it, recognizing it, short moments, many times. So that we can do. 
we can practice the end of craving for short moments. Short moments many times. When we explore the meaning of the Buddha's declaration, achieved is the end of craving, when we explore that in our own experience, we can see for ourselves how craving, how the force of craving in the mind obscures the mind's natural wisdom. It obscures awareness. So we don't have to take this on faith or belief. We just need to look in our experience of what happens in the mind when it's filled with craving. And how in moments free of craving, free of wanting, free of desire, we really can recognize the taste for ourselves in that moment of happiness and of peace. So as a simple experiment, the next time, you know, tonight, tomorrow, the next day, the next time a desire should happen to arise. Just investigate its nature. Really look closely at the nature of desire. See how it feels. And then especially notice when the desire comes to an end, because it will. The desire arises, it's there. Explore, become aware of its nature, and notice the quality of the mind when the desire ceases. My experience has been that always it's a sense of relief. It's like being let out of the grip of something. So tonight I'd like to explore the nature of craving, which is a powerful force. Craving is the force the Buddha pointed to which drives the whole wheel of samsara, the whole wheel of conditioned existence. Craving is that driving force. So to explore its nature, how it operates in our lives, and also talk about some of the skillful means that different traditions employ to realize what is the one dharma of liberation namely the mind free of craving. Achieved is the end of craving, the mind at peace. So craving is the usual translation of the Pali word tanha. And tanha is described as a thirst in the mind. It's described as the fever of unsatisfied longing. That's the force of craving. And I think those words are very evocative. You know, when we think of a thirst for something, or a fever of unsatisfied longing, it gives a sense of the compelling power of desire, of craving. This is not an insignificant force in our lives. We begin to see that this thirst is just the opposite of peace. Now, sometimes in English, we use the words craving and desire synonymously. 
But sometimes this gets confusing because desire in English, the word desire, can have a range of meanings. So sometimes desire is the mind state of craving. It's rooted in greed, leading to clinging and grasping. It's the state of mind that you might have noticed arise around the chocolate cake. (laughs) That's desire as craving. Sometimes the word desire refers to just the simple needs for the essentials of life. And sometimes the word desire means motivation. It's just the motivation to do something. You know, the motivation, the desire to accomplish some aim, the desire to become awakened. That's not necessarily rooted in greed or clinging. It's simply the motivation to do something. But tonight, when I use the word desire, understand it as meaning craving. I'm using desire in that way. When the Buddha taught that craving or desire is the underlying cause of suffering, he talked about how it plays out in three different arenas of experience. The first is the one that's most obvious to us. It's the craving or desire for sense pleasures. And here the sense pleasures include pleasures of the mind, is the sixth sense. So we're all familiar with this, you know, and we can see it in a wide range of intensities and frequencies. It may be desires, obsessive desires, that can consume our lives. You know, maybe it's addictive cravings for food, or for alcohol, or for drugs, or for sex, or for success. You know, an obsessive desire for success, or power, or wealth. When that becomes the ruling force of our lives. And in so many ways, our culture fosters and values this force of desire. How much email spam do we get with the headline, Increase Your Desire? As if somehow that's a good idea. Brilliant. Let's increase our desire. (laughs) And yet that's the message, as if it is a good idea. I saw one ad in a magazine. It said, instant gratification just got faster. (laughs) Shopvogue.com. So that's the message that we're getting. Desire is good, and the faster we can gratify it, the better. So sometimes desires become this obsessive, have that quality. Sometimes the desires may just be passing thoughts of wanting that take us out of the natural open ease of mind. There's a phenomenon that I call catalog consciousness. Do you have the experience of making the mistake of opening a catalog? (laughs) And then 
turning the pages, waiting for something to want. <laughs> oh, maybe on the next page I'll want something. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> and finally, when we get to the last page, I can just put the thing down. It's that sense of relief. We're, we're out of the grip of that wanting mind. It's pretty pervasive. This is a deeply ingrained habit pattern. Sometimes we experience the deep-rooted persistence of even very small desires. Many times I've been on retreat, just going along, doing my practice, and a thought will arise, oh, a cup of tea would be nice. And I'll just note it. Cup of tea? It's just a thought. A moment later, oh, a cup of tea. <laughs> note it. Cup of tea. Note it. Note it. Note it. Note it. Get the tea. <laughs> I mean, it's just like it's waiting, you know, for that one split second. <laughs> and psh, off we go. So, you know, it's like that blade of grass that'll just pop up through cement. That's, that's the persistence of desire. Often different of these patterns of craving and desire, wanting, are so familiar, so much a part of who we take ourselves to be, it just seems like this is normal, this is, this is just how I am, how people are, that they remain invisible to us. We don't even see the force of desire at work until we really bring some awareness, some really strong mindfulness to the workings of our mind. The retreat environment is very conducive for beginning to see this force of desire at play, the craving for sense pleasures of different kinds. You know, on retreat, even though outwardly the field for fulfilling desires is somewhat limited, that doesn't really stop our minds. You know, the craving is still there. We might experience it as just the indulging of pleasant fantasies. You know, we're just sitting here, nobody's bothering you. <laughs> and we might have fantasies of, you know, just the projects we want to do, or the places we want to go, or maybe they're enticing sexual fantasies. We just get lost in them, and oh boy, that hour went quickly. <laughs> it's like the mind gets hooked in, not to the Vipassana Vendetta, but the Vipassana Romance. You know, where we just start fantasizing about somebody on retreat and can build whole stories. It's helpful to notice how we can get caught up in these fantasies of whatever our own, you know, our own particular ones are, how we just can get caught up in them again and again, even though we know they don't go anyplace. So a note that I found really helpful, particularly with recurring fantasies, you know, ones we've just, we've been down that road a hundred times. On the hundred and first time, as soon as it starts, I would put a little sign up in my mind, dead end. <laughs> Just as a reminder, this is a dead end. 
it's not going anyplace. So instead of having to go down that whole road and then come back and start again, don't even have to go down it. It's better to have the sign at the beginning of the road <laughs> rather than at the end. We can also experience desire or craving in the form of expectation or desire for some new experience, for something else to be happening, you know, for some great meditative experience. It's very helpful to be aware of what comes along with this kind of desire, this expectation. Because if you pay attention to what comes with expectation, I think you'll see that it inevitably brings agitation of mind. It leads us into cycles of hope and fear. Hope that we'll get what we want, fear that we won't. And it keeps the mind in a state of unease. The expecting mind often comes disguised as something. You know, just like doubt comes disguised as wisdom. Expectation can come disguised as aspiration. We think, oh, I just have an aspiration for my meditation to develop. It's very tricky. Because expectation and aspiration are two very different qualities of mind. For example, we can be practicing the very beautiful aspiration of bodhicitta, that aspiration that our lives and our practice be for the awakening, be for the benefit of all beings. So that's, that's a beautiful and noble aspiration. And at the same time, we can realize that that aspiration is not fulfilled by expecting. It's not fulfilled by craving. It's fulfilled by letting go into the wisdom mind of awareness. That aspiration and the force of expectation are two very different things. I've also noticed in my practice how expectation for anything in practice, in meditation, so easily leads to the comparing mind. You know, we can get into this competitive sitting as if it's kind of a race for some finish line. There's a big difference between being inspired by other people's practice and getting caught up in either self-judgment or pride about our own practice relative to other people's practice. And I went through this in a big way. The first retreat I sat with Saida Upandita. It was in 1984 at IMS. It was a three-month retreat, very intensive. You know, we were just sleeping four hours a night, seeing him six times a week. It was very pressured. And at a certain point, I just had this idea of my fellow yogis, and you know, some of them seemed to be doing so well, and I was going through so many struggles in my mind. 
So there was just a lot of self-judgment you know, about myself, about my practice. And it was suffering. It was really suffering. It was springtime in Barry at that time. And one day I went out, and just outside the main building, it was just along the side of the a walkway, uh, the flowers were just starting to come up. You know, there was, the tulips were coming up. It was a tremendous lesson in looking at the tulips, because some had come up and had fully opened, blossomed and opened. Some had come up, and the flower was there, but it was still closed. Some had come up and were just kind of poking through the ground. And I realized, our practice is just like that. You know, they develop, they grow each at their own rate, their own speed, according to their own conditions. Those flowers were not racing to see who could bloom first. <laughs> it was amazing, just by looking at those flowers, it's like, oh, I could just let go of all that comparing mind and settle in to letting my own practice unfold, letting it blossom in its own time. So it's helpful to see this comparing mind and how it plays out in our practice, but also in our daily lives. When these desires are unnoticed, whether it's the desire, you know, the strong obsessive desire for sense pleasures or just you know, minor moments of the wanting mind, or comparing, or expectation. When they're unnoticed, just like the other hindrances of doubt and aversion, they hinder concentration and obscure the natural wisdom of our mind. So we need to notice them. We need to become aware. In addition, and somewhat ironically, and this is something I think we should really pay attention to, our desires don't even deliver on their promise of happiness. I mean, if they delivered, it would be one thing. <laughs> but they don't. We believe that experiencing sense pleasures, you know, whatever our own desires are, will bring us happiness because of the pleasant feelings that come along with them. And they do, for a time. But as we all know, the problem is that these pleasant feelings are very impermanent. And so they're continually disappearing and changing. We go after another, and another, and another, and another, and this becomes our life. It's like trying to quench one's thirst by drinking salt water. We just get thirstier. How many sense pleasures have you enjoyed in your life? Countless. Beyond number. Yet we never seem to come to a sense of completion. They do not bring fulfillment. And we all know this. You know, even though we still get caught up in desire and craving, we know pretty deeply that they don't really deliver. Well, you wouldn't be here. <laughs> you know, this is not where people would come like a silent retreat to be on vacation. 
So we all know, you know, that desire is not the route to fulfillment. But we forget. Now this doesn't mean that we should never enjoy ourselves or not experience the pleasantness of different sense contact. It's just to understand the transitory, very impermanent nature of this enjoyment. And really to consider how much of our lives and how much of our energies do we want to invest in the endless pursuit of them. So it's not about not enjoying it, but where are we putting our energies? What are we dedicating our lives to? Dharma practice opens our understanding to possibilities of much greater happiness in our lives. So this is the first arena of craving, the desire for sense pleasures, something we need to explore, to understand, to really look at in our lives. The second kind of craving goes even deeper. And this is the basic urge or desire to be. It's called the craving for becoming. It's the desire for renewed existence, particularly in pleasant circumstances. Now, in traditional Buddhist understanding, it refers to desire for rebirth in some pleasant realm. Now, we may or may not believe in rebirth, you know, even though it is a very classical part of the teachings. This is, it's right there in the teachings. And Munindra, he would often regale us with stories of the heaven realms, the deva worlds. And I loved hearing about it. I mean, I was, tell me more. But a lot of people in our group did not believe, you know, had a kind of Western skepticism about it. It's not part of our understanding. So Manindra would always say, you don't have to believe this. It's true, but you don't have to believe it. (laughs) So you don't have to believe it, and I don't know whether it's true. (laughs) But for us, there are more immediate and direct experiences of this craving for becoming. We can leave rebirth aside. We can see this craving for becoming every time we get lost in the planning mind, just imagining ourselves in some future situation. Notice how often in the day, or just think back to today, how often the mind is lost in the mind creation of some future self more than once or twice. <laughs> I'll do this. I'll go there. I'll... We just project in our minds. We're not there. In our minds, there's this desire, the craving for becoming. The Buddha gave some very specific and also challenging instructions in this regard. And what's I just love so much about the Buddha's teachings is it's so direct and so to the point and challenging of our ordinary way of viewing things. So this is what he says. Not reviving the past. 
not hoping to be in the future. Instead, with each arising state, not craving after past experience, not setting one's heart on future ones, not bound up with desire and craving. So just imagine what it would be like to practice living like that. You know, this is not this is not just some kind of theoretical thing. The Buddha is saying, this is the instruction for freeing the heart. So what would it be like to actually practice doing that? Not reviving the past, not setting one's heart on future experiences. And almost all of our lives are spent in those two activities. Reviving the past, looking forward to the future. What would it be like to just settle back instead with insight? See each arising state not bound up with desire and craving. That's a challenging practice. So we can notice what this is like for short moments. Instead of thinking, oh, this is some unattainable goal, you know, it sounds good and maybe someday. No, we can practice it for short moments many times. And we begin to experience for ourselves what is the heart and mind like in those moments free of craving. We pay attention. On a more momentary level, we can see this craving for becoming just in the unfolding process itself. Now, have you noticed how often we practice leaning into the next moment, as if somehow the next moment of experience, the next breath, the next sensation, the next thought, will resolve everything, as if somehow the next one will bring us what we're looking for. The next one is not going to do it any more than this one. We can come to completion in this moment, and that leaning forward is just this craving for becoming. It's the desire for becoming. I call this the in order to mind. We can see this, we're watching something in order for something to happen. How often are we in this mind state when we're feeling painful sensation? Watching it, aware of it, in order for it to go away. Mm-hmm. That leaning forward. <laughs> or with some emotion. Maybe there's some strong emotion arising. And we're with it in order to open further. You know, we have some agenda. That's craving for becoming. We want something else to be happening. And we're not seeing experiences as simply empty appearances arising and passing away in the moment. We forget that liberation is not about holding on, it's not about getting, it's not about becoming. It's not about getting something or having some new experience. It's about not holding on not craving, not clinging. I want to read something (coughs) 
from Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, a great master I had mentioned a few days ago. He said, if we have interesting experiences, either during or after meditation, we should avoid making anything special of them. To spend time thinking about experiences, to spend time thinking about experiences is simply a distraction. These experiences are simply signs of practice and should be regarded as transient events. We should not attempt to re-experience them because to do so only serves to distort the natural spontaneity of mind. Did that go in? (laughs) We should not attempt to re-experience things because to do so only serves to distort the natural spontaneity of mind. All phenomena are completely new and fresh, absolutely unique and entirely free from all concepts of past, present, and future. They are experienced in timelessness. That's a powerful reminder of how to be with our experience, fresh in the moment. Ramana Maharshi just summed it up beautifully, the great Indian saint. He said, try to be less, not more. Just think what it would be like in our lives and in our meditation, be less, be less, be less, be less, be less, be less, less, rather than more, 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 more. Okay, so there's desire for sense pleasures. There's the desire for becoming. The third type of craving the Buddha talked about is the desire for non-existence. And this can be understood in different ways. It's actually not that esoteric, this desire for non-existence. We see it every night when we want to go to sleep. You know, we may have had a wonderful day filled with all kinds of delights and pleasures, and at a certain point, all we want is oblivion. We want to not know for a while, because the knowing has gotten so tiring. That's the desire for non-existence. Or we may have moments when things just seem so bad, you know, if only I could not be. On that same retreat in 84 with Upandita during the hard times, I was sitting in my room, it was kind of a basement room at IMS. I was sitting in this was kind of like a bunker. <laughs> and I was going through a really difficult time. It was just a lot of physical pain and my mind was giving me a hard time. And you have to remember this was 84, so the, the world political scene was a little different. And I heard planes coming over and I had the thought, Oh, I hope they're the Russians. I'm going to drop some bombs (laughs) so I can stop sitting. (laughs) It wasn't a very compassionate thought for my fellow yogis. (laughs) But just just to get out of here. Not to be. (laughs) The mind. (laughs) Craving for non-existence just like the other kinds of craving, is fed and sustained 
by the view of self, by the view of ego. And all the kinds of craving, there's either a self to gratify, craving for sense pleasures, a self to clone in the future, desire for becoming, or a self to get rid of, desire for non-existence. They're all rooted in self. And what's so odd is that we're just living under this great illusion because there's not a self in the first place. You know, the writer Wei Wu Wei said it very well. He said, whoever thinks that a self exists objectively is like a dog barking up a tree that isn't there. It's maybe that same barking dog. <laughs> you know, but it's barking up a tree that is not there. Our lives revolve around this self acting out all these kinds of cravings, and it's not there in the first place. So the great discovery in practice is that on one level, birth and death, existence and non-existence, self and other. On one level, these are the great defining themes of our lives. Our lives revolve around birth and death, existence and non-existence, self and other. And on another level, we see that it's all just a dance of empty appearances. As the Buddha said, it's a magic show of consciousness. So the question for us is how can we disentangle from this force of craving? How can we experience the mind free of craving? And here we can see how the different traditions all converge in their understanding of what frees the mind. Now, there are so many methods in the different traditions, in different vocabularies, in different metaphysics, but there is one essential taste of freedom. Patril Rinpoche, then was one of the really great Tibetan Dzogchen masters. He was a vagabond monk. He just wandered around Tibet, often dressed in rags, but he was renowned as having this amazing realization. He was really very beloved by the Tibetan people. So he was this very great master just wandering around. And he summed up the essential point of all our practices in some lines from a poem he wrote. And this little poem is called Advice from Me to Myself. Okay, so this is, this is advice of Patrol to himself. Listen up, old bad karma Patrol you dweller in distraction. For ages now, you've been beguiled, entranced, and fooled by appearances. Are you aware of that? Are you? Right this very instant, when you're under the spell of mistaken perception, you've got to watch out. Don't let yourself get carried away by this fake and empty life. Your mind is spinning around, carrying out a lot of useless projects. It's a waste. Give it up. 
Thinking about the hundred plans you want to accomplish with never enough time to finish them just weighs down your mind. You're completely distracted by all these projects which never come to an end, but keep spreading out more like ripples in water. Don't be a fool, for once just sit tight. You beat your little drum, and your audience thinks it's charming to hear. You're reciting words about offering up your body, but you still haven't stopped holding it dear. All this Dharma practice equipment that seems so attractive, forget about it. If you let go of everything, 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 that's the real point. Even though you don't know how to practice, just let go of everything. That's what I really want to say. Pretty straightforward. <laughs> it's the same teaching. Whatever tradition you look at, the nature of freedom is in the mind that lets go, the mind free of craving, the mind free of clinging. In traditional Vipassana practice, we decondition craving, letting go of everything through an increasingly refined experience of impermanence. That whatever arises also passes away. And it's all happening very, very quickly. Our friend Wes Nisker wrote about this in The Inquiring Mind. In the subatomic world, time is sometimes measured in what scientists have named attoseconds, a millionth of a trillionth of a second. It takes an electron about one attosecond to travel all the way around a proton. Meanwhile, inside the proton, perhaps one level deeper into reality, an attosecond would be a long nap. Down here, time is measured in zeptoseconds, <laughs> a billionth of a trillionth of a second. I think at some point the physicists realized that they entered a Marx Brothers routine where the jokes are coming so fast you begin to see that it's all a joke. So when they started measuring things changing even faster in trillionths of a trillionth of a second, I mean, just imagine, a trillionth of a trillionth of a second they named it a yaktosecond. <laughs> Atto, zepto, and yakto. <laughs> By the way, the time it takes for a quark to circle around inside a proton is somewhere between a zeptosecond and a yoktosecond. All you can do is smile and let go. <laughs> Things are changing quickly. But we may not yet have refined our perception two trillionths of a trillionth of a second. There can be powerful moments of letting go through seeing impermanence on more conventional levels. You know, in New England, when you walk through the woods, very commonly in the forest, you see these old stone walls. It can be miles and miles of stone walls from where farmers 100 years ago or 200 years ago cleared the fields. You know, and lined them with these stone walls. You see just the stone foundations dug into the ground, you know, of houses that are no longer there. You see these very old headstones in the cemeteries. 
And so easy to imagine all of those life stories, just as vivid and compelling as our own. And where are they now? You know, what remains? And there's a teaching from Deepama, who was a wonderful teacher from India, Calcutta. Most of you know her story, but she's an extraordinary woman. Had a tremendous amount of suffering in her life. She was married at a young age, didn't have children for a long time, then had three children. Two of her children died, then her husband died. And she said that she was literally dying from grief, that she, she said that she was basically bedridden for five years. You know, it was so overwhelming, the, um, the magnitude of that loss. She was in Burma at the time, you know, and finally her friends urged her to go to one of the meditation centers. They said, otherwise you'll die. And she did, and it turns out that she was just this extraordinary being with extraordinary paramis, and in a very short time, attained high levels of enlightenment and realization and the powers of concentration and all the psychic powers. So she was this extraordinary yogi. And she was also just the most incredibly loving being. So she was this, she was this being of emptiness and love. And that's what you felt with her. You know, when you went and went to her room and she'd, she'd kind of give the Indian-style blessing, she'd just run her hands over your head and shoulders and back, and it was like just being bathed in nectar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she was extraordinary. She could also have a very fierce compassion. She was awakened, and she knew what it was about. So I want to read this story, and it's fierce, you know, but it's very powerful. It's a story, and it's in, it's in a book of Deepama's life called Deepama, which is a collection of stories that different people contributed. So this was a story by a woman named Sudipti. And so it's her, she's telling the story. So Sudipti said, When my son died in 1984, Deepama shocked me with her words. It was a hard teaching I have not forgotten. Deepama Today your son has gone from this life, from this world. Why are you shocked? Everything is impermanent. Your life is impermanent. Your husband is impermanent. Your son is impermanent. Your money is impermanent. Everything is permanent. There is nothing that is permanent. When you are alive, you might think, this is my daughter, this is my husband, this is my property, this car belongs to me. But when you are dead, nothing is yours. Sudipti, you think you are a serious meditator, but you must really learn that everything is impermanent. Just imagine the setting of this teaching. This woman had lost her son, but Deepama was not speaking theoretically. She had been through that and more and come to a place of tremendous realization, we really must realize that everything is impermanent, that liberation means not clinging. It doesn't mean a little bit of clinging. You know, I'll just hold on to this. And it doesn't mean not loving. 
Deepama was the most incredibly loving being. But it was love completely suffused with wisdom. So this is what our practice is about. It's not a hobby. You know, it's not like a nice little thing to do for nine days. It's really about understanding the deepest truths of our lives. What causes suffering and what is the nature of freedom? On all of these levels, the more we allow the truth of impermanence, the deep, deep truth of impermanence, to permeate our lives, not only conceptually, but directly perceiving it and experiencing it, the more we're able to let go. There's a book called The Women of the Way, Women of the Way, and it's it's by Sally Teasdale. And it's a book tracing 2,500 years of women in Buddhism. You know, and there are many, many beautiful stories in it. So this is a story of the abbess of a Zen nunnery talking about her moment of awakening, of liberation. And it's just so direct. She saw everything arising, abiding, and falling away. She saw that no, the, the, the nun's name was Tejitsu. She saw that knowing this, the knowing of things arising, passing away, that knowing this itself arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew that there was nothing more than this, no ground, nothing to lean on, stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean on at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. She opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. So the letting go is not some nihilistic state. It's the letting go of suffering, the letting go of self, the letting go of craving into the midst of everything. In Dzogchen and some Tibetan traditions, we can experience and touch the mind free of craving through the direct recognition of the empty, open, aware nature of mind. And then we practice stabilizing that recognition. So in this way, from this angle, it's not through seeing the impermanence and letting go. It's through seeing directly into the empty nature of mind and then stabilizing that recognition. It's one Tibetan teaching. It says, the experience of emptiness is not found outside the world of ordinary appearances, as many people mistakenly assume. So the experience of emptiness is not some esoteric meditative state. In truth, we experience emptiness when the mind is free of grasping at appearances. 
It's the same message over and over again. We experience emptiness when the mind is free of grasping at appearances. But sometimes there are subtle fixations of mind that are very difficult to see. We might be aware of all objects arising and passing, appearing and disappearing quite fluidly, but there is often a subtle identification with the awareness itself. That's very hard to see. This becomes a very interesting place of investigation. We see how awareness itself can be reified in some way. It's as if we make a home of awareness and then a sense of self settles right into that as being home. Now there's one teaching of Tranga Rinpoche which just highlights this. And this is quite a subtle point. You know, because we talk a lot about resting in awareness and just settling back into awareness, which is great. We don't want to add to that an identification with that awareness. This is from Trangu Rinpoche. The failure to recognize the mind's true nature occurs because its empty aspect is obscured by its lucid or knowing aspect. That's pretty refined. You know, we talked about the nature of mind being the union of emptiness and clarity, emptiness and awareness. So the nature of mind is the union of those two. But the realization of this nature of mind we often miss because the awareness aspect is more, um, as subtle as it is, is more obvious than the empty aspect. And so the awareness aspect obscures the empty aspect. And so we miss it. So then we're making awareness our home. This is me. This is why it's big. It's really big, spacious, open. Big, spacious, open me. So we need to really explore, explore this carefully. So how can we cut through this very subtle identification with awareness itself? So we clearly recognize its empty nature. Now different traditions use different tools for cutting through this identification. In Vipassana, just traditional Vipassana practice, at different stages of seeing impermanence, we begin to see the rapid momentary dissolution of consciousness. There are certain stages where our mind is so refined, we're just seeing consciousness moment after moment dissolving, dissolving, dissolving. So that really weakens the identification with it. And at a certain point in experience, there's a discrete discontinuity in the process of consciousness. So we really see its impermanent nature. And this completely uproots 
the long-held belief in a notion of some permanent self. The director of the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, which is a sister organization to IMS, his name is Andy Olensky. He's a Buddhist scholar as well as practitioner. He wrote something very, very good about this. He said, consciousness is not a thing that exists, but an event that occurs. You know, so it's just a way of not reifying consciousness, not identifying with consciousness. So another way of cutting through identification with knowing is to look for the mind itself. Tilko Ergin would often instruct his students, look for the mind. Tell me what you find. Can you see it? Can you taste it? Can you touch it? When you look for the mind, when you look for awareness, there's nothing to find. And the not finding is the finding. That was the Tukorgin's teachings. That's look for the mind, look for awareness. Look, look, look. There's nothing to find. Pay attention to that moment, that very moment of not finding. Just in that moment, we realize it's empty nature. Sometimes the liberating power of this not finding, that there's nothing to find, and yet the knowing is happening. It's, in one way it's been expressed, the cognizing power of emptiness. Nothing to find, and yet the knowing is happening. This is quite a mystery. You know, and this is our lives. This is the nature of our minds. Sometimes the liberating power of not finding is realized suddenly. You know, we really look for the mind, nothing to find, and, and there really is a sudden awakening. Sometimes, like we understand it as we practice over a long period of time. There's one Zen dialogue that I want to share with you, because it's a direct pointing. I mean, the person who's asking the question in this got enlightened as this dialogue unfolded. Now, I have to give you a little heads up here. The way the dialogue unfolds, it's this kind of a Zen witticism to it. But that's not the point. It's really a profound teaching. And so, so listen in that way. And it's a story of Bodhidharma, you know, who's said to have brought uh, Buddhism from India to Tibet. No, India to China, sorry. And he was sitting in his cave, you know, for seven, eight, nine years. And then this man, again, I'm not sure of the pronunciation, but Huika, H-U-I-K-E. He came, and he was really suffering a lot. So Huika says to Bodhidharma, please teach me the Dharma seal of all the Buddhas. Please give me the teachings. So Bodhidharma says, the Dharma seal of all the Buddhas 
cannot be obtained from someone else. Hueca says, My mind is distressed. Please pacify it with your teaching. This could be us. My mind is distressed. Please pacify it with your teaching. Bodhidharma, present me your mind and I will pacify it. Hueca, I've searched for my mind and I can't find it. Bodhidharma, there, I've pacified it. <laughs> Just look for a moment. You know, look for your mind. There's nothing to find. It's already pacified. All the struggles, all the commotion that goes on in our minds, we look for it, there's nothing to find. It's already pacified. So we can practice in these ways. We can practice in all of these ways, and they all are ways of understanding and realizing for ourselves what the Buddha declared in that Song of Enlightenment. Realized is the unconditioned, achieved is the end of craving. That's our practice, from whatever angle, whatever side we look at it. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. This is a teaching from Atisha. Consider all phenomena to be dreams. Be grateful to everyone. Don't be swayed by outer circumstances. Don't brood over the faults of others. Explore the nature of unborn awareness. At all times, Simply rely on a joyful mind. Don't expect a standing ovation.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.